All right, good evening, everyone. I think we'll begin. Uh, welcome to tonight's event. I'm Paul Kirby, and I'm a research fellow at the Center for Women, Peace, and Security here, and I'm very glad to be uh, chairing tonight's event, implementing the Women, Peace, and Security Agenda, National Action Plans, and Beyond, which is hosted by the Center for WPS and is the London launch of the WPS National Action Plans database which you will hear about more in a moment. So tonight we welcome back to the LSE Professor Laura Shepherd, a long-standing friend of the center and collaborator on all things women, peace, and security. Laura is Professor of International Relations at the University of Sydney and a visiting fellow at the LSE Center for WPS. She is also an Australian Research Council Future Fellow, which sounds appropriately sci-fi for somebody who also works on the politics of popular culture. Laura has worked on the WPS agenda for many years and is, I would argue, its preeminent analyst. As well as articles too numerous to count and many edited volumes, Laura is the author of three books, most recently, Gender, UN, Peacebuilding, and the Politics of Space, which I believe has just won its second prize uh, from a uh, scholarly association. And before that, author also of Gender, Violence, and Popular Culture and Gender, Violence, and Security. So you'll notice a running theme in those titles. Uh, before Laura begins, three small matters of housekeeping. In the event of a fire, uh, leave the building promptly, please, and make your way to the assembly point on Lincoln's Inn Fields. Uh, second, if you could all silence your phone, that would be most helpful. Anyone wishing to comment on Twitter can use the hashtag LSEWPS. And finally, the event is being recorded and the audio will be available online in a few days, subject to no technical issues. So Laura will present for about 45 minutes and then we'll have the same period of time for uh, Q&A and after the presentation and questions and answers there'll be a reception outside uh, which you're all uh, very warmly invited to join us. So without further ado, over to Laura. Thank you very much Paul. Um, Thank you all for coming out this evening. It's just beginning to rain, so you made it in before the wet weather, which is excellent. So this evening, I'm going to be presenting findings uh, from four years of research that was generously funded by the Australian Research Council, uh, a project titled Women, Peace and Security, Rethinking Policy, Advocacy and Implementation. And the project is related, like much of my research, not the popular culture stuff, but the rest of it, to a set of UN Security Council resolutions adopted under the title of Women and Peace and Security, um, with which I assume many of you have a passing familiarity. Um, since the passage of the first Women and Peace and Security resolution in 2000, uh, Resolution 1325, there have been eight further WPS resolutions adopted under this thematic agenda item at the UN Security Council, the most recent of which was adopted in April this year. Um, I'm not quite ready to talk about that process yet, but I wrote a very angry blog post on the subject uh, if you're interested in my thoughts, which I shouldn't express over a recorded system. <laughs> the provisions and principles of these resolutions are usually grouped into four pillars. The participation of women in peace and security governance, 
the protection of women's rights and bodies in conflict and post-conflict settings, the prevention of violence, including both the prevention of violent conflict in line with an anti-militarist strand of the agenda, and the prevention of conflict-related sexualized violence more recently, and relief and recovery, which is broad and therefore much more difficult to theorize and operationalize, but relates to gender-sensitive humanitarian programming in the wake of disasters and complex emergencies, as well as the inclusion of women in post-conflict reconstruction and peace-building activities. In addition to the Security Council resolutions that form the policy architecture of the WPS agenda, um, we've seen the development over the past two decades of a host of additional materials, protocols, guidance, and action plans supporting the implementation of the agenda in local, national, regional, and international contexts. It is a diverse and proliferating policy system involving numerous actors, institutions, and experts. And the agenda operates within and is sustained by activities at multiple sites of practice, as well as being codified in all of the additional policy and policy-like documents that I mentioned a moment ago. Moreover, the governance of the agenda involves actors from formal and informal political domains, weaving together connections across advocacy, activism, academia, and formal policy spaces. So when I proposed this research to the Australian Research Council, the driving motivation for me was to understand and find a way to engage with this diversity or this complexity. I formulated a rather extensive set of research questions um, that would allow me to interrogate the complexity of the WPS agenda at multiple levels. And I've produced what are, to me at least, some interesting findings about how the agenda is constituted, how it travels, and how its interconnections build and sustain networks across spaces and over time in ways that in turn affect and shape the agenda's possible futures. So, for the time I have this evening, um, I'm going to talk through some of those key findings and introduce you to some of the research outputs that um, we've produced through this project. Speaking of publications, so I do want to make sure that I acknowledge um, my very wonderful and brilliant collaborators. So this project wasn't originally intended to be uh, a collaborative project, but I have benefited enormously from working with some truly brilliant people over the past four years. Um, I found that collaborating with smart people makes me smarter, which is excellent. Um, and many of the project's outputs, therefore, are co-authored with colleagues, um, including Paul, and research associates who've worked on various aspects of the project over the years. And my presentation this evening draws um, on these four works in progress in particular, um, one of which you'll notice is a book that I'm currently writing. But the others are all collaborative ventures. And I want to be very clear that if I say anything that's particularly innovative or interesting, chances are the credit should go to one of these excellent humans rather than me. Um, mistakes, misrepresentations remain my own. That said, um, I guess where I am solely responsible is in the original design of the project, which started from the desire to rethink policy, advocacy, and implementation. So the project had three aims as it was originally conceived. First, to develop a comprehensive account of the policy framework comprising the WPS agenda at the international level through analysis of the policy formation practices related to the agenda at the UN in order to extend knowledge of the possibilities and limitations enabled by this framework. 
Second, to map the relationships between different actors engaged in WPS advocacy, including civil society actors, academic researchers, uh, policymakers, practitioners, government and UN analysts, through a kind of social network analysis to comprehend how these relationships manifest in and have an impact on implementation and advocacy. And third and finally, I wanted to trace the translation of the WPS agenda from the international to the national level in both the development of national action plans to implement Resolution 1325 and the advocacy practices that inform and are informed by these national action plans, thus to better understand obstacles, challenges and inconsistencies in the realization of the agenda at the national level. But in a way I started with the project from this last point, asking how I could understand the realization of the agenda, both at transnational and national levels. And I got very stuck in the process of thinking this through on the concept of implementation. So I've recently realized that I'm mostly interested in governance, um, which was a bit confronting, actually, because I've always thought of myself as schooled in and contributing to security studies. Turns out, after kind of 15 years of uh, branding myself as a security studies scholar, that's not really what I do. Um, but my angle on security has always been its governance. And this is how I got interested in the WPS agenda in the first place. So I was keen to understand how gender violence was articulated as a matter to be governed by the UN Security Council, the body charged by the international community with the maintenance of international peace and security. And a focus on governance makes sense of my interpretation of the WPS agenda as a policy framework, rather than as an instrument of soft law, a normative framework, or a set of security practices, all of which are sustainable interpretations. And it also gives rise to my interest in implementation. Now, there's a lot of literature on implementation of the WPS agenda. And in policy terms, there are national action plans for the implementation of the WPS agenda at country level. There are regional action plans governing WPS in regional organizations and guidelines and protocols developed by intergovernmental organizations such as the North Atlantic Treaty Organization and the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. So there are implementation initiatives also across the UN system, and specific UN entities have WPS or WPS-related strategies for implementation. So the WPS agenda, in short, has motivated and mobilized massive efforts in transnational, national, and local contexts, and yet there is an abiding sense in which implementation is falling short. The 2015 Global Study on the Implementation of United Nations Security Council Resolution 1325, which is a document of some 400 pages presenting research from across the world on various dimensions of WPS practice, concluded that, quote, obstacles and challenges still persist and prevent the full implementation of the Women, Peace and Security agenda, end quote. There are no doubt material factors that inhibit effective implementation including a lack of resourcing, poorly designed programs and initiatives, and outright resistance on the part of key actors. But this research, as with most of my research, proceeds from the core premise that ideas about the WPS agenda also inform and influence its potential realization. 
The idea that ideas matter allows a particular understanding of the WPS agenda as a field of discursivity, which is produced and reproduced through the practices that are performed in the name of WPS, which are in turn informed and shaped by the ideas that people hold about the agenda. Policymaking, advocacy, and implementation can be interpreted as a form of discursive practice, reproducing the agenda in diverse and sometimes conflicting ways. Thus, WPS as a policy agenda emerges in and through the practices that are performed in its name. Part of how the agenda is, as Foucault would say, put into discourse, formed and simultaneously forming a knowable reality, is through the formation of policy and its implementation. So, one of the primary vehicles for the implementation of the WPS agenda is the National Action Plan. In a 2004 presidential statement, the UN Security Council, quote, welcomed the efforts of member states in implementing Resolution 1325 at the national level, including the development of national action plans, and encouraged member states to continue to pursue such implementation. The idea was that member states of the United Nations would each write plans for the implementation of Resolution 1325, which was at the time the only Security Council resolution adopted under the title of Women and Peace and Security, that could then guide practice in the national context. Although there's much contestation about whether national action plans are the most appropriate means of guiding state practice in the sphere of WPS work, and whether in fact the state should be constructed as the primary agent in the sphere of WPS work at all, there is no doubt a dedicated field of practice has developed around the formation and execution of national action plans across the world. I would argue that NAPs are therefore worthy of critical interrogation because they can reveal much about how the WPS agenda is being reproduced. Different states articulate different priorities in their national action plans, or NAPs as they're known, and different states have different interpretations of key concepts such as conflict or security, which can create significant differences in planning and even influence whether a state pursues a NAP at all. The government of India, for example, has long maintained that the absence of armed conflict within the country means that WPS resolutions do not have relevance in that context. Shumita Basu's work on this is particularly instructive. Ultimately, the plans are policy documents and are thus subject to the same political wrangling as other policies within the state. The location of the plan within the machinery of government also varies and seems to be significant in the overall implementation of the plan. As Ashleen Swain astutely comments, quote, its positioning within government will determine its focus, whether it's domestic or foreign policy focused, and its level of influence. National women's machineries are typically lacking the resources and political status in many countries to strongly attract genuine political interest and funding, end quote. So as part of the research into how WPS is reproduced, I curated a collection of all available national action plans. And where the NAP was not available in English, we had the document translated. And this created an English language data set of all available NAPs, including those that have since been superseded. A total of 128 plans from the very first, which was authored by Denmark in 2005, which was the most, uh, to the most recent. Um, Armenia and Namibia released NAPs into the public domain this year, and Ireland published its third iteration this year also. There are nine further NAPs in production that I know of. If you know of any more, hit me up afterwards. 
um, and others that are under embargo that are not included in this count. So the data that I'm about to present is based on the current database, which contains one or more NAPs from 81 member states. So this is the exciting part. To complement existing resources uh, that are produced, like Peace Women and Inclusive Security, both have fantastic portals um, that present national action plans and, and analysis on the plans. So to complement these resources, we conducted some simple content analysis on the whole database um, in order to create an interactive website through which people can search the database for key themes and priority issues. And I really want to thank Nikki Armstrong of the Center for Women, Peace and Security for her amazing help with this project. Um, and this enabled us to identify some trends and shifts in the development of national action plans from treating the existing plans in aggregate as a set of data about the women, peace and security agenda. So I'll talk a bit about each of those elements in turn, but first I want to show you around the website because it's really awesome. So if we go here. Um, so this is going to be going live, hopefully, towards the end of this month. Um, at the moment, it's in beta, so we don't have public access, I'm afraid. But I'm going to show you around. The landing page takes you to an interactive map uh, that shows you where all of the NAPs have been produced. That's working. That's good. So uh, we've got enough here, I think, to, to give you a good sense of, of how the portal is going to work. So you can filter this display by region, year, and keywords, um, which I find just ridiculously exciting. <laughs> um, so for example, if you wanted to see all NAPs in Europe um, that mention, um, let's say, refugees or IDPs, you can adjust the filters accordingly, and it will show you which, which NAPs produced in which countries use those keywords. Or if you want to see all NAPs produced in a particular year, for example, you can filter for that if you want to see all NAPs with all keywords produced in 2016. So we don't have all the data loaded at the moment, so you might see some wonky results as we scroll through, but um, you can get a sense of how you might be able to use this in your own research, um, how it makes accessible um, national action plans that kind of present particular issues and themes. Um, alternatively, you can quick jump to country. Uh, you can use this drop-down menu to jump straight to a country profile. So if we look at, I've said Nigeria in my notes, so we better look at Nigeria, otherwise everything's going to go horribly wrong. So if we look at Nigeria, you select the country and it takes you through to the country page. And because Nigeria has published two iterations of it... Maybe I'll just close that. Thanks, Nikki. <laughs> um, right, because Nigeria's published two iterations of its national action plan, you can see that it's got its years of publication at the top here, and you can toggle between them. So if we scroll down a little bit, you can see where it sits in the machinery of government. Um, in this case, the Ministry of, Women of Women's Affairs and Social Development, which we've coded as gender slash women. And you can see the methodology behind this coding uh, on the methodology page intuitively. Um, you can also see which of the pillars is the dominant focus of the National Action Plan. Here it's the participation pillar. And again, we explain the methodology on the methodology page. And in these shaded buttons here, you can see uh, three more elements of the coding that we undertook. 
Uh, we coded for level of civil society involvement in planning. Uh, we coded for level of budget specification and the level of specification of monitoring and evaluation in the plan. Um, these are coded on a six-point scale from zero to five. Uh, it took me really tragic length of time to realize that zero to five is in fact a six-point scale. <laughs> Numbers are not my good thing. Um, but luckily, like I said, I collaborate with smart people, so that makes me smarter. Um, so you can see here that the 2013 National Action Plan in Nigeria was coded at three out of five for level of civil society involvement, three out of five for budget specification, and four out of five for M&E specification. If we click through to 2017, you can see that while M&E specification has been strengthened, both civil society involvement and level of budget specification has um, diminished. Now if we scroll down to the bottom of the page, you can see here a histogram representing the findings of the content analysis that we did, uh, showing the raw number of mentions of each of the search terms that we plugged into the software that we were using, which is a software program called Envivo. In countries that have more than one NAP, this provides a really easy at a glance way to track changes in NAP priorities over time. So in Nigeria, for example, we are currently in the 2017 NAP. If we go back to the 2013 NAP, you can see that the histogram represents precisely zero mentions of terrorism or violent extremism. If we toggle to the 2017 NAP, it's not there, which is disappointing. If we toggle to the 2017 NAP in the alpha version of the launch website, we will see that the 2017 NAP mentions these terms 43 times. So when all the data is loaded and we have the histograms active, you'll be able to trace over time how the different national action plans uh, represent and engage with the different thematic concerns that we've identified. So obviously this is it's kind of an imperfect way of identifying and analyzing state priorities, but it does at least give an indication of how NAPs are developing and gives an insight into trends and shifts in priorities when the data set is analyzed as a whole. Um, so having collected all these data, my very brilliant research associate, Caitlin Hamilton, and I set about producing some visualizations from the data set as a whole uh, so I could share some of these trends and shifts with you this evening. So I'm now going to toggle back, I hope, to the slides. Um, and we're going to write this up in a report that we're hoping is also going to be available to download from the website when it goes live. Um, so please do drop me an email if you'd like me to send you a copy. I'm very happy to share that. Um, we're hoping that it will kind of complement and update the amazing report um, by Miller, Pornick and Swain from 2014 that did a content analysis on every available NAP up until that point. Obviously we're five years further down the line with a lot more national action plans to talk about now. So, some of these visualizations in treating the NAP as a data set as a whole. You can see here the representation of the three uh, P pillars across the whole data set, all 128 national action plans. Um, in the website, as I showed you, we include an indication um, as to which of each of these pillars the NAP skews towards where sufficient data is available. And the SKUs are based on the raw count of pillars of prevention, participation, and protection. So they're designed really just to give a kind of impressionistic indication of the pillar upon which the NAP places the greatest emphasis. 
Importantly, we used raw counts um, of these pillars, bless you, meaning that with prevention, for example, we captured the prevention of conflict as well as the prevention of specific forms of violence. And with protection, we captured the protection of rights as well as the protection of bodies. Um, so a little more detail and nuance would be needed in order to disaggregate between the different ways that these concepts are articulated. Um, but I think it's interesting to note uh, from this data, if I can show you the kind of um, increase in the orange bars down the bottom here, which relates to prevention. A skew towards prevention seems to be becoming a little more prevalent in recent years, and I'm intrigued personally to find out whether that is prevention of conflict or the prevention of specific forms of violence, which will take further qualitative research. And I just want to say I'm really sorry from an accessibility perspective that I've used colors to distinguish between the different forms of um, the different uh, elements of the series. I know that that's not optimal and I apologize for that. Um, so, as mentioned, building on um, Swain's insight about the location of NAPs within government, we also coded for lead agency, which is one of the um, elements that we represent on the uh, database. Uh, we use six categories, whole of government, social affairs, gender women, foreign affairs, defense, and civil society. And in contrast to the last graph, which showed all 128 national action plans, this shows only current national action plans. So we didn't want to double count or artificially inflate the count of any one agency. But you can see in yellow here, this big mountainous graph, um, this one's my son's favorite, by the way, which is kind of random, but also kind of cool. Um, you can see that there are a lot of NAPs sitting in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs or similar. Uh, it seems that whole of government NAPs, which is this dark blue peak up here, are becoming uh, more prevalent and that there are quite a few sitting in ministries for gender or women, although notably fewer than in foreign affairs. And as I've argued in one of the earlier outputs from this research, a paper that I published in 2016, situating the NAPs in this way creates an inward or outward focus for WPS activity that then affects how the agenda itself is perceived and, again, as Swain notes, resourced going forward. It's particularly interesting to chart the category of lead agency by region, which I've done here. And you can see from this graph that there are distinct regional differences in the location of NAPs within the machinery of government. So 100% of NAPs from the Middle East, that's this big green pillar here, sit within ministries of gender or women, and the same is true of 70% of African NAPs. Only a little over 5% of European NAPs sit with a similar lead agency. Over half the European NAPs sit within ministries of foreign affairs, and countries within both the North and South Americas also situate the majority of their NAPs within these ministries. So the WPS agenda is in these places literally a matter of foreign affairs, resolutely outward looking. And as I've written in my earlier analysis, this location orients security politics and practices of the author states outwards to provide security to insecure populations that are always outside the boundaries of the author state. Situating these states as providers of security also constructs the state security actors as experts involved in, quote, making war safe for women, 
uh, a war that is always located beyond the state, and thus perpetuating the dynamics of militarism and elite-centric security governance that the WPS agenda seeks to challenge. Overall, the focus of national action plans generally varies considerably from state to state, although most address to some degree each of the four pillars of WPS activity. In recent years, many NAPs have incorporated other topics, uh, including climate change, human trafficking, and violent extremism. Increasing the range of topics with which NAPs are concerned, however, increases the complexity of cross-government coordination, as often responsibilities for such topics cut across many different portfolios or lines of responsibility in government. It's nonetheless the case that the number of topics considered relevant to the WPS agenda as manifest in current national action plans is growing larger. So this is a stacked area chart where the number of mentions identified by the frequency queries divided by the number of NAPs published in that year, so as to, again, avoid artificially inflating the frequencies. Now this graph shows only the prevalence of emergent issues uh, post-2015 um, to get a sense of how the agenda is proliferating in recent years since the articulation of what were called new security challenges into the policy architecture of the agenda with the adoption of resolution 2242 in 2015. So the preamble of this resolution notes, quote, the changing global context of peace and security, in particular relating to violent extremism, which can be conducive to terrorism, the increased number of refugees and internally displaced persons, the impacts of climate change, and the global nature of health pandemics. Thus, post-2015, we see an increased level of attention paid to these emergent issues. And the proliferation is even more starkly illustrated when we take a longer view. So this graph presents the same data only over a longer time period, with weighted mentions of each search term since 2005. The uptick post-2015 is really noticeable here, which suggests that the WPS agenda is changing considerably as it expands to accommodate more and different issues within its remit. The last few elements of these data that I want to share with you relate not to topics or locations of the NAP within government, but its governance, specifically three dimensions of its governance identified by the literature on NAPs as relevant to NAPs' effectiveness. These are the level of budget specification, the inclusion and robustness of a monitoring and evaluation framework, and the extent of civil society involvement in the formation and drafting of the NAP. So the full methodology is available on the website, but it's, it, essentially it was interpretive work as there's considerable variation within the NAPs regarding how this information is expressed. And again, I want to recognize Caitlin Hamilton's excellent work on this element of the project as she did the bulk of this coding. If we start with the budget, I'm afraid I do not have a happy story to tell you. Um, this graph represents the average level of budget specification in all current NAPs, so the data set of 81 plans. So as you can see, from a high point of three out of five, uh, in 2008, representing a broadly defined budget and the inclusion of some information about funding levels for the implementation of the plan, there has been a steady decline, that's a steady decline, <laughs> in the level of specificity in the NAPS as a whole. 
So the trend line actually ends up below 1 in 2019, representing plans that might include the word budget, but don't necessarily show any specificity regarding funding levels, disbursement plans, or similar. Monitoring and evaluation, on the other hand, is quite well represented and consistently above average in the current national action plans. The inclusion of the trend line here shows a moderate but steady upward trend, which is positive, as any policy that aims to effect change that requires a sound and robust monitoring and evaluation framework to assess whether that change is actually happening. Finally, in regard to the national action plans, the WPS agenda has a vibrant civil society constituency and was institutionalized as an item on the agenda of the Security Council due to the sustained efforts of women's civil society organizations. The continued engagement of civil society and WPS governance has been a linchpin of the agenda since its inception. Despite this, Levels of civil society involvement in the formation and drafting of national action plans have been somewhat disappointing. You can see on this graph that the average level of specification is hovering between 1.5 and 2 out of 5 in our coding scheme, which means that there was mention of civil society, such as a thank you given on the acknowledgements page, but no specification of activity or extent of involvement. Two out of five in our coding scheme means that civil society involvement was ill-defined, such as a reference to civil society being consulted on the NAP without any clear indication of what that meant. Thus, the average level of civil society involvement, sorry, that the average level of civil society involvement in the current national action plans doesn't exceed two out of five is certainly something to work on going forward. So, in addition to presenting the beta version of the new NAPS website, which as I might have mentioned, I'm really excited about, I've talked you through some of the trends and shifts um, in national action plans using this curated data set of all currently available plans. In terms of how these plans can be interpreted as practices that reproduce the agenda in particular ways, I guess I would draw three takeaway points out of this information and analysis. So first, there is clear evidence of regional variation, not least in the location of national action plans within the machinery of government. And this is something that I'll pick up on again shortly in relation to another set of WPS data. This suggests that NAP governance structures are reproducing WPS differently in different parts of the world, which I think is instructive going forward. Second, the agenda is obviously proliferating. The range of topics that are included within the auspices of the agenda far exceeds the pillars and is increasing. And this produces the agenda as increasingly diverse and accommodating of many and various themes and issues. Third, and perhaps most disappointingly, uh, we're not seeing significant levels of civil society ownership in the formation and drafting of national action plans, nor stellar performance in budget specification and M&E. The specification of monitoring and evaluation, as I mentioned, is more or less holding steady, while the level of budget specification has steadily decreased over time. Given that these are elements that research suggests improve the effectiveness of national action plans, I would hope that after two decades of WPS activity, we would see some positive upward trends in these domains. The production of WPS across these domains, then, is very much a state and status quo agenda, where governance processes are relatively limited, civil society involvement fairly tokenistic, and adequate budgeting patchy at best. But 
There is more to WPS than national action plans. And in the few minutes I have left, I want to talk a bit about a couple of other elements of the research that I've undertaken as part of this project. Both of the outputs that I want to discuss next similarly render the agenda in complex and surprising ways. So first is a piece of work that I'm undertaking with Paul, which curates a data set of WPS documents beyond, though including, national action plans. And again, through analyzing this data set as an aggregate representation of the WPS agenda, we were able to make some interesting observations about how the agenda has unfolded in practice and how and in what ways these observations challenge commonly held views about the agenda's coherence and stability over time. One of the key observations in this piece of research, which is captured in this complex and also quite small graphic, sorry about that, um, is the extent to which the development of the WPS agenda on the African continent features prominently in the WPS policy system. So down here, we have WPS artifacts that were authored by African organizations over time. So you can hopefully see from this chart that other than the United Nations, documents which form the first three of the WPS artifacts in the system that we're looking at. Um, three of the four significant and early WPS documents were authored in and by African organizations. So a narrow focus on national action plans reproduces the narrative of Nordic norm entrepreneurs championing the WPS agenda. Because in that story, Denmark is again credited with the adoption of the first national action plan, closely followed by Norway and Sweden in 2005 and 2006, respectively. And that's the only account of that narrative that I can tell if I focus only on national action plans. This narrative has important implications for the perceived ownership of the agenda and constructs authority and credibility within the agenda in particularly Eurocentric ways. Puncturing this narrative through showing the, that in actuality three of the four significant early WPS documents produced outside the UN system were authored in and by African organizations is an important corrective to the continued dominance of current ideas about who writes WPS and where WPS is executed. Second, and relatedly, this rather beautiful and complicated graph shows a social network of WPS entities across Facebook and Twitter. So in this piece of research, uh, my colleagues and I explored the nature of online interactions among civil society organizations working on policy and practice related to women, peace, and security. Please don't ask me any complicated questions about the analysis because part of the joy of the collaboration is that I get to work with people that are smart about the things that I'm stupid about and that includes social network analysis. So I will share this with you on the understanding that you won't ask me any tough questions about the data behind this graph. What I can tell you is that the data suggests that a small group of organizations based in the global north have disproportionate visibility in online activities related to the WPS agenda. 
meaning that the digital social life of the WPS agenda reproduces the global north as the locus of agenda setting, knowledge production, and dissemination of information about the agenda at the expense of voices, knowledges, and experiences from the global south. So this image illustrates the relations between key WPS organizations across both Twitter and Facebook data sets. The resulting network is overwhelmingly populated by organizations headquartered in the Global North, and you will see this immediately when I tell you that these are colored blue in the image. 88% of the 78 entities in the network are headquartered in the Global North, and of these, 42% are located in the USA, 15% in the UK, and 29 in other EU member states. The remaining 10 are based in Canada, Norway, and Australia. Organizations headquartered in the Global South comprise only 12% of the key organizations as manifest in the Facebook and Twitter data sets. And these are colored red in the image. So if you're paying really close attention, you can kind of see a little red bubble here, another one here, and one here, and then a little one down here. Five of the nine Global South nodes are located on the African continent, with three of these in Ethiopia and one, in each, uh, one each in Kenya and Uganda. Two are based in Southeast Asia, in Indonesia and the Philippines, and the last organization is headquartered in Afghanistan. Though well-connected, organizations based in the UK and EU clearly occupy a secondary position in relation to the core of US actors. Overall, those organizations headquartered in the Global South occupy peripheral positions within the network. There's no significant Global South cluster or community. And the overall lack of connectivity that we captured with our data among and between Global South organizations, as well as their limited representation among key entities, places them in a subordinate position relative to Global North entities in the realm of knowledge production and dissemination. So we draw on a post-colonial theoretical framework um, and our social network analysis reveals that patterns of inclusion and exclusion that have been identified in real life I don't quite buy the distinction between real life and digital life, but anyway, um, have carried over to the digital presence of WPS advocacy networks. Global North WPS civil society organizations enjoy substantially greater access to and authority over the WPS agenda than do those based in the Global South. In line with the north washing of the agenda that erases the contribution to the development of the WPS agenda made by African organizations and institutions, the dominance of the global north entities visible in the social network of WPS reproduces a coloniality of the agenda that has been highlighted by others, including Nicola Pratt, Mar Maria Martin de Almagro, Tony Hastrup, and Jamie Hagan. So finally, Though it's much less fancy than an interactive website, the last major output that I want to discuss here tonight from this project is a book presently under the working title of Narrating the Women, Peace and Security Agenda, which applies narrative theory to the reproduction of the agenda at United Nations headquarters. So in this book, which I just finished writing a draft of, it's very exciting, <laughs> I analyzed two decades worth of WPS-related documentation 
the annual reports of the Secretary General, the WPS resolutions, WPS presidential statements, and transcripts of open debates at the Security Council. And I analyze these alongside transcripts of interviews undertaken at United Nations headquarters in New York over a six-year period. There's a lot of interviews. There's a lot of transcripts. In the book, I examine these documents as storytelling practices, analyzing the stories that are told by people working on WPS within and around United Nations headquarters in New York. And I talk about the ways in which those stories create particular knowable realities, making possible certain actions and outcomes while proscribing others. I blend narrative and discourse theory to analyze the stories of the WPS agenda, examining the arrangement of discourse in the formation of particular stories. And I argue that these stories are structured through four powerful logics, a logic of incoherence, a logic of impossibility, a logic of dislocation, and an ambivalent logic of practice. So those annoying brackets, they're not the kind of an affectation. They demonstrate the intrinsic plurality of these logics and how they resist closure. So a single logic of co coherence, for example, would tend towards organizing discourses that reproduce the agenda as whole and integrated. And conversely, a logic of incoherence would tend towards organizing discourses that reproduce the agenda as multiple and disintegrating. The argument that I make in the book is that both of these logics structure the discourses that in turn comprise the narratives of the WPS agenda. They're not either or, but both and. And similarly, a logic of possibility would tend to structure the narrative of the agenda according to its representation as manageable and operationalizable. Impossibility would render its opposites. And both are evident, both are true in the stories of the WPS agenda that I recount. The logic of dislocation produces the space and place of the agenda. On the one hand, situating or homing the agenda in New York at the Security Council, and on the other hand, projecting its um, reproduction elsewhere to spaces and places beyond and outside of the elite institutions of global governance. And this relates to, but is not exhausted by, what I've identified as an ambivalent logic of practice. And it's ambivalent because it structures the attachment of radically different values to the concept of practice. So literally, it's, its valence or its emotional register is both good, representing authenticity, experience, and credibility, and bad, where practice is subordinated to formal knowledge, expertise, and authority. The story of the WPS agenda that I interrogate in the book has five dimensions. At and around UN headquarters, the WPS agenda is narrated in terms of the agenda's origins and stories about the ownership of the agenda. It's also narrated in terms of its successes, its failures, and the pressures and tensions within the agenda. It's constituted in the stories of silence, secrets, and the sensibilities that are communicated around it. And in the book, I identify uh, and examine each of these dimensions in turn. And this is, in a sense, the empirical contribution that I want to make in the book. So through an analysis of over 90 documents and the transcripts of 24 interviews, together comprising many hundreds of pages of textual data, I identify these stories as not only being present but prominent in the way that the WPS agenda is represented. 
The story of ownership and the origins of the WPS agenda is made up of discourses about the agenda's significance, its in interconnectedness with other proximate policy frameworks, and its completeness. The agenda's success stories, on the other hand, are told in and through discourses of the anniversary effect, which marks time in the agenda and reproduces the idea that the adoption of the resolutions as a political act is itself an integral part of the agenda's success. A motif of moderation in the story of success is captured in discourse of little wins and discourse about the possibility of leveraging the agenda into further more significant change. Failure narratives comprise discourse about lack, a lack of funding, a lack of political will, a lack of experts and expertise necessary for effective implementation. Present here also is an important discussion about the scope of the agenda and its magnitude, so vast as to prevent effective implementation from the outset. This resonates with the discourses that make up the stories of tensions and pressures. The magnitude of the agenda is also invoked in the constitutive discourse here about how the priorities and emphasis of the agenda are both settled and agreed and yet not settled and agreed. The stories of tensions and pressures is also told through discourses of institutional and geographical disconnection and the power of the Security Council. A final discourse within this narrative relates concerns about res resolution fatigue, which is interconnected with discourse about the unsettled nature of the agenda. Holding these discourses in formation and constituting meaning in and through the practices that I examine are, as I mentioned, these four sets of logics. And these logics refuse reconciliation. They refuse to privilege one side of the binary over the other. The discourses that I identify don't produce, in combination and over time, either coherence or incoherence, either possibility or impossibility. They produce both and. So there's a story about WPS that constitutes the agenda as a coherent set of principles and practices enshrined in UN Security Council resolutions authored by UN member states in consultation with representatives of civil society of which implementation is possible given the right conditions. But there are numerous other stories that contest and conflict with this account that show the ambiguity of the agenda's core tenets and trouble that which is taken for granted. Should prevention be attached to conflict, for example, or to sexual violence in conflict? Does protection refer, refer to rights or bodies? Are representatives from civil society organisations the authentic progenitors of the agenda? And does this elevate their credibility and authority over the career diplomats representing state interests at the table in the council chambers? These stories are true also. The agenda is coherent, possible, located within the council and enshrined within the council's resolutions. And it is incoherent, impossible, spatially dispersed, and embedded in the practices of multiple actors, advocates, policymakers, practitioners, and those same career diplomats. It is both and all of these things. And there's value in recognizing this plurality as constitutive of WPS as a policy agenda. Surfacing the plurality of these logics means that those working on and around the agenda must necessarily give up on the illusion that the agenda is or ever can be conceived of as singular and thus manageable, coherent, possible. There is no singular, authentic, real and true women, peace and security. 
there are inevitably competing and often conflicting claims and counterclaims about the agenda's principles and priorities. Some of these are more persuasive than others, and some aspects of the agenda are widely accepted among the WPS epistemic community as having been codified within the agenda's artifacts. But even these cannot be simply ported from resolution to program delivery site. Interpretation and translation is always required. There is a seductive attraction in the idea that the Women, Peace and Security agenda has a single, pure authenticity. It is politically and normatively appealing to be able to articulate a right way to do WPS, a set of policy prescriptions that once fulfilled would mark the agenda's full achievement. The idea that there is a fundamental agenda is used to explain shortcomings suggesting that WPS actors have missed the point on fundamentals, the foundations, and thus failed to capture its potential. Its presumed coherence is the underpinning logic of its apparent limitations. But its potentialities lie here too. I have had recounted to me nu numerous times the experience of being told it's complicated. When a WPS actor is pushed to explain or account for why its implementation actions are falling short, so much so that it's become something of a running joke when talking with friends who also work in this space. It is complicated. The agenda is complicated, and it's hard work. Bringing the WPS agenda into the world in this way, engaging with it as a complex governance system, and positing that WPS emerges as a knowable policy agenda in part through its narration at UN headquarters, implies that its complexity can no longer be used as an excuse or rationale for inaction. So this book shows how narratives of the WPS agenda are organized according to plural and undecidable logics and argues that this plurality, this actually existing complexity of the agenda, cannot and should not be used as an alibi for limited action or strategic inaction. It is complicated, but that cannot and should not deflect or diminish sustained engagement with the agenda in its infinite complexity. The plural logics that I identify resist efforts to close down or narrow the meaning of WPS as a policy agenda in global politics. And so effective political engagement, the realization of the agenda, in fact, depends on sitting with and finding productive potential in multiplicity, polysemy, and ambivalence. Finding productive potential in complexity and at the same time holding on to the normative impulse that drives efforts to ensure that the reproduction of the agenda recognizes complexity, diversity, and the many competing histories of the agenda foreshadows plural and complicated futures. As we approach the 20th anniversary of the adoption of Resolution 1325, I wanted to be able to say more about the limits of the agenda than its implementation is contingent on adequate resources and political will. I've spent four years prying open the construction of the WPS agenda that constitutes its taken for granted status as a knowable policy object, and I am left here with pieces. But each piece has reproduced the agenda in particular ways, according to particular logics and operations of power. Understanding each piece as part of the reproduction of the agenda means that we might begin to ask different questions about WPS and leverage different modes of inquiry. 
So I've argued throughout the new book that knowing the WPS agenda through a narrative approach engages a, enables a productive condition of engagement. It's an ill-disciplined or perhaps more generously multidisciplinary approach attentive to narratology, discourse theory, politics and policy. It's not an approach that lends itself to certitude and ultimately mine is an argument about uncertainty and the multiple images and imaginings of women, peace and security that constitute its realities now and in the future. It might be difficult for those trained in and wedded to the Euro-American model of conventional social science research and method and used to the conventional stories, the Eurocentric narratives of women, peace and security development. But to work within and alongside uncertainty and undecidability, we might embrace the hard work of mess, chaos and complexity. It is, after all, complicated. Thank you. Thank you very much, Laura. Uh, we have just over half an hour um, for questions, uh, which I'll take in groups of two or three to start, if you're happy with that. There are roving mics going around, and if you could keep them relatively brief so we can cover uh, a wide range of discussion, uh, that would be uh, fantastic. So if you do have a question, please raise your hand uh, in the front row. Hi, thanks, Laura. Uh, Catherine Wright from Newcastle University. Um, so much to think about there. I think I'm going to be digesting that for a while. Um, and if you could get that website live for two weeks when I teach WPS, that would be brilliant because my students will love it. Um, I had a question about the, some of your, your data and the MVBO mm. analysis. Um, you, one of the graphs, you had civil society as, as the lead in implementing the NAPS, um, and I wondered, you, you may not know off the top of your head um, if you knew what country that was, because it seems... It's the Dutch NAP. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> and then related to that, um, I, w I wondered, so you spoke about what um, 1.5 and 2 out of 5 would look like in terms of civil society involvement. If you could talk a bit about what 5 out of 5 would look like um, and if you thought about um, whether civil society could be co-opted and if you were able to kind of account for that, which I know might be tricky. Can I Thank go you. back over here? You can, I'll take the second oh, question sorry. while you go if you like. And uh, then just in front, the, the, in the purple. Hi there. Uh, so I had a question about the database that was presented. In the map when you presented it, there were very few implementations plans in Asia as a continent on a whole. Do you see any trend going towards these countries, which do not have any NAPs at the moment, working towards someday maybe having a NAP action or a document which is not directly stating itself as a NAP, but working in the same direction? So just to recap, we have a, a question on what five out of five looks like with civil society involvement and a question about um, the absence of NAPs uh, in Asia, Asia and whether that's going to so if I flick to the methodology, you've got, there's a, a scroll down, I'm really hoping it's here. <laughs> oh, here it is. Um, so five was that civil society was a co-drafter of the NAP. Um, and there was another element to your question that I've promptly forgotten. Co-optation. Yes. So one of the... Um, 
things that has come out of another piece of research related to this is the dissatisfaction of some civil society organizations in some states where we have coded kind of four or five for civil society involvement and those civil society organizations have expressed dissatisfaction saying that they felt that they have been listed as having you know either been a co-drafter or they have um, been offered the opportunity to feedback on a draft and have input into the design of the National Action Plan, where they feel that that didn't necessarily <laughs> capture the reality of what happened. So there's always kind of more work to be done to drill down behind the quantification of what is always going to be a complex and, and kind of protracted political process. Um, so I'm very kind of clear about the limitations of this as a methodology and I wouldn't want anybody to sort of say, you know, well, like, that's what it says on the website, therefore we don't need to look further at these processes um, because obviously you can't learn a lot from reading a single policy document. And very, yep, I mean, let me be very clear, the coding was undertaken just as, as a piece of desk-based research. So we have other parts of the research that have gone and spoken to civil society organizations, but those are not part of the methodology for the website design. Does that make sense? And I think that actually links to your question about um, you know, what's happening in various regions. Like if we go back home and we to all um, the national action plans in Asia at the current time, um, you can see that there is a degree of um, kind of variation and spread. Um, but I think as with any region, we're going to see NAP activity as a result of a kind of variegated and complex set of processes. Um, and also, I would say having a national action plan doesn't necessarily mean quality WPS work is happening in that context, right? Because you, um, you can have a plan and it cannot be funded, or you can have a plan that has caused kind of significant contestation around the issues that it raises, that it then doesn't get the political buy-in that it needs. And again, like I think every context deserves its own kind of careful and close and sort of respectful engagement. Um, this is a very top-level representation, I guess, of some of the politics of WPS in these places. Yeah. Great. Other questions? I've got in the green jumper at the end, um, the third row. Um, sorry, it's always when you're about to speak, yeah? Firstly, thank you so much. Um, it was quite enlightening and very wonderful listening to this lecture. I particularly love the website and your visualization of data. I'm really looking forward to reading the methodology. Um, how does the uneven distribution of civil society knowledge production and discourse towards WPS impact the discourse towards WPS in both Global South civil society groups as well as their national action plans? Okay, and then right at the back in the, in the hooded coat you fit. <laughs> Thank you. Um, my name's Sophie. I've been working on uh, evaluations of various NAPs in the past, um, including the UK, Denmark, and some others. And I was quite interested in some of the findings you shared because we did a benchmarking similarly for one of the evaluations we worked on. 
And I just had two, possibly three small comments because there was a lot of interesting stuff there. In terms of budgets, um, I'm interested in your opinion on this. You mentioned research that shows that dedicated budgets is effective. Could you say a bit more about what that means and effective in what, what way? Because in the UK, as you I'm sure know, that conversation about, well, if there's a pool for WPS, it's get, people will say, we've done WPS, whereas the real challenge is for all of our work on conflict, peace, and security to be gender sensitive and to include you know, the priorities under our NAP. And I personally, I can buy into that in, in some ways politically in like a complex government system like the UK. So it'd be interesting to know your thoughts. I feel like maybe in some smaller countries, a standalone fund has got less risk of that happening because the government machinery is not so large and complicated, but I don't know if that's your view as well, so I'd be interested to know your thoughts on that. And we talked about civil society, and I think I also had a query on, on that because you might look at the document and not see it visibly, but there's good collaboration happening in practice, and so is there a risk that that kind of analysis conveys a message that there's a problem or that the ideal is co-drafting, and I think that's not necessarily the case. There could be lots of different types of collaboration that are really quality. Um, so I'd just be interested in, in your thoughts on that. And finally, just in terms of the UN, sorry. Um, we you talked about P5 and the kind of power relations and North and South. And I, I suppose I wonder, obviously UN reform is another conversation, but while the P5 exists, surely there is a need for there to be leadership of P5 members in WPS, as well as local level activity. And sometimes when I meet with women's rights organizations in different places, it's really useful for them for there to be a kind of global North WPS agenda in the Security Council because they can hook into that and influence power relations. And if it was not relevant or there wasn't kind of sexy priority agenda going on there. So I just wondered what, what was your thoughts on, on where that should be going? If you see what I mean, I hope that makes sense. Great, I think we've got four there. Uh, uneven distribution of civil society discourse and impact in the global south. Uh, what does it mean to have an effective budget, uh, visibility in civil society, and then finally the indispensability of the P5 question mark. Thanks. Can you explain a little bit more what you mean about distribution of civil society discourse? To be frank, I was just struggling for a word. Um, I was looking at the, or thinking of the visualization of social media mentions and those which were coming out of NGOs and civil society organizations and groups in Global nor North versus those that were coming out of glo from Global South organizations, NGOs, think tanks and the like. Mm. So I just meant perhaps not distribution, but the greater number, greater number. Okay, yes. yeah, no, sorry, I, I, I got you. I think I'm just a little bit tired. I understand now, I think. Um, so in terms of that question, um, the social network analysis is a very sort of uh, structural, macro level um, analysis where we coded organizations basically into Global North and Global South. Um, we didn't look at the nature of the discourse at all. We didn't look at the content of um, the Facebook pages or the tweets. We looked at 
the entities that were connected through the network and the kind of quality and depth of the ties that connected the different entities. So we did find, and we sort of talk about it in the paper, which we're, we're hoping to submit fairly soon, um, we found some interesting regional variations where regional networks seem to be much more prominent than uh, networks that encompassed sort of global north and global south actors. Um, and we found also that um, the, like, as you saw from the representation, from, from the visualization of the network, that the, as a whole, the network is massively dominated by global north organizations. Now, obviously, we don't know what the content is, so we can't say anything more than the network is dominated by global north organizations. But building on kind of um, theory and analysis of the politics of representation, like we would argue, and we do argue in the paper that this matters because, you know, according then to the sort of the digital social life of the women, peace and security agenda, these are the actors that have prominence. Um, whereas actually, like we might want to challenge and unpick that a little bit. Does that make sense? So I guess in part it's a methodological question, but in part also it's, it's a limitation of the research design, which again was put together the way that it was because we wanted to fit it into one single journal article and not let it become bigger than Ben-Hur, as we say in Australia. Okay, um, so the three, the three questions, um, the three really good kind of points of, of um, engagement. I think you're absolutely right, of course, that there is contestation over the question of, of a kind of specified versus devolved budget. Um, I guess I, to put my cards on the table, am persuaded by the literature that suggests that there is evidence for um, the effectiveness of specified budget when it comes to pinpointing you know, exactly how much WPS activity is receiving as a kind of part of p general kind of peace and security and conflict funding. Um, that's not by any means a universally shared view. Um, I think what we're seeing is increased sophistication in the research on this that says, you know, that, that goes beyond the bifurcation of a kind of either the identification of a pot of money or anything goes to um, specification, for example, of um, like a, a kind of a devolved budget where there are literally line items that are costed within a national action plan versus a pot of money that is committed to general WPS activities. And I think we'll have a better sense in five or 10 years of which of those modes of budgeting is most effective in terms of achieving the outcomes of the NAP, obviously, because it's always got to refer back to what did the NAP hope to achieve. Um, so I think I tend to find the literature that suggests higher levels of specification is, is more persuasive, um, is, sorry, is more effective. I find that literature more persuasive. Yes, that's what I meant to say. Sorry, words failing me now. Um, in terms of the, uh, the representation of civil society involvement in national action plans, we, we are absolutely looking at the representation of that involvement in national action plans. And that has all kinds of kind of assumptions built into it. We're not assuming necessarily that the author states are um, 
are sort of necessarily capturing, and it kind of goes back to Catherine's question, the, the sort of the realities of that process. We are you know, treating all national action plans, all 128 of them, um, as representations of that relationship. So I think that there is a need to analyze that on its own terms. And if I think when you're dealing with a data set of 128 documents, if you're applying the same coding frame to each of them, then that will tell you something about how that relationship plays out, even if there are individual differences within the case study countries. Does that make sense? Is that sort of? So I guess, again, it's sort of a methodological question about that level of specification and what it tells us. And I think that increasingly, you know, member states are recognizing the need to um, talk about civil society involvement in their national action plans. So I, again, I think in five or 10 years' time, it's going to be interesting to see where we get to in terms of aggregate trends, aggregate trends in that sphere. Um, and in terms of P5 power relations and the utility of having Global North leadership, um, I guess I would say that there is nothing in my findings and nothing I think in, in what I would say about the agenda that suggests that's not true, but I think that to tell that as the only story of WPS authority and credibility and expertise is to miss a really important part of how WPS has unfolded and therefore how it can unfold in the future. So while I think obviously there's a need, you know, on a very practical level, there's a need for states to be pen holders on resolutions, there's a need for states to leverage diplomatic ties in order to generate support for the adoption of resolutions or not. Um, you know, there are all kinds of ways in which state practice, international relations as, you know, in the kind of vernacular, like that matters very much. And um, I would not ever wish to say that the WPS agenda exists somewhere outside of those kinds of, uh, of practices or those kinds of domains. But I also think that solely to focus on those elite level political processes and the institutions of global governance within which they are located is to miss a big part of the story. Mm. Uh, in the middle, in the grey jumper. Hi, thanks so much for the talk. Um, my name is Ruby, I'm from Conciliation Resources and formerly Centre for WPS. It's great to be back. <laughs> um, my question was again on civil society aspects and I noticed in a lot of your analysis, you talk about civil society almost as a whole and whether, in sort of, um, whether you've broken that down into different kinds of civil society um, from sort of more elite groups to maybe civil society organizations that are working in more conflict-affected mm -hmm. regions. Um, I just imagine the level of engagement in terms of developing NAPs would be very different if you're engaging with a advocacy civil society organization based in the capital than if you're working with an organization in the sort of more peripheral regions of a conflict-affected state and what that would look like mm -hmm. in your analysis. Thanks. And a few rows further back, I think in a yellow t-shirt. 
Good evening, my name is Marie. Uh, thank you very much for your talk, and uh, I really like especially the website. My question is, uh, do you think that previous convention, like for instance the elimination of all forms of discrimination against women, can help for the implementation of WPS? And then I'll take a third one on the other side, about halfway back in the purple. Uh, thank you for the presentation. And uh, my name is Rasha. I'm from Yemen. I work for a, a Peace Track Initiative. It's an organization that um, has the biggest network in Yemen uh, with women organizations. We're working now on uh, the National Action Plan on Yemen. It was um, the government assigned a man to do that. And uh, while, do, while, while they were doing the consultations, they did put names of women from our network and from uh, organizations they never talked to them. Uh, we're currently working on that, but um, when you were talking about, I know you said that you, you didn't go deeper yet on, and there should be work on civil society organizations, what they are. But uh, the challenges that we face is that there are many um, um, uh, projects that are done to on the women uh, peace and security agenda that are working with civil society organizations that are men uh, civil society organizations and they say that they will work with women um, and we, the way that we were working working is that we're doing consultations we're funded by the Dutch um, government and we're doing consultations and then we will have to force it into the draft that the government is doing so um, to what extent can we know, which as, as her question and the question also from the back, what are the organizations that are actually being heard and, and how can we actually reach the real women who are working on the ground all over the country? Thank you. So we have two linked questions there, I think, on disaggregating what we mean by civil society and whether you can do any of that, and then one on um, CEDAW's potential link to WPS implementation. So let me take the, the CEDAW question first. Um, it's sort of... It's a little embarrassing to be sitting here talking about CEDAW and WPS um, for the Center of Women, Peace and Security when you have Ashley Swain here who is like literally world expert on precisely that dimension. So I'm not going to say too much on that because, um, yeah, everybody should just read her analysis of it because it's really very good. Um, but I think, you know, if I don't want to kind of misrepresent um, what she has argued and what others have argued, that the um, reporting against General Recommendation 30 of um, the CEDAW framework, it really gives the WPS agenda some teeth, I think. It, um, it allows um, member states and civil society organizations in member states to put pressure um, on uh, the governments to report against elements of what they would consider to be the WPS agenda and activities that fall within that remit um, under the CEDAW framework. So I think that there's very definitely complementarities between the two and um, General Recommendation 30 was a really kind of big step forward in terms of creating a framework against which WPS activities can be reported and, um, and given some kind of substance. Um, and regarding the, the sort of the two linked questions on, on the civil society, on the homogeneity of civil society, and um, you know, you're absolutely right in a kind of, in a 40 minute talk or even in a four year research project, it's really easy to lapse into this kind of, you know, talking about civil society organizations as though they all mean the same thing, um, which obviously is not the case. Um, I guess 
the the work that we've done on these elements of the project really don't represent or get at that diversity and they really also don't um, allow us to understand much about what different civil society organizations are doing what different levels of access and funding they have what different levels of of, of kind of influence they have over the work that's happening within their particular context and how those contexts vary. So another piece of research which is still ongoing, which is why I didn't talk about it this evening, is um, a project um, where we are interviewing as many um, civil society organizations that we um, analyze for the social network analysis. We're interviewing as many as we can get a hold of um, to understand how they see the work that they do. And we're hoping that that element of the project will speak really to some of these questions that you've raised about that homogenization and about that kind of the specificity of those types of engagement. Um, and we're drawing on a lot of literature um, about um, global care chains and care labor um, and in our framing of that um, piece of the research because I think there is a strong sort of discourse around women's civil society organizations doing the care work of women, peace and security um, and a sense in which the organizations kind of rightly think of themselves as being the, the sort of the nurturers and the nourishers um, of the agenda. And so we're looking at what that, how that manifests in practice in order to better understand some of the nuances and texture of those engagements that are completely absent from this research. Like I'm, I'm not kind of claiming in any way that that is present in what I've presented this evening, but we as a research team are aware of it and are conducting this research in order in part to provide a counterpoint to the kind of much blunter surface and top level analysis that's captured here. Okay, and we have in the front row, you can get a mic down here. While it's coming, I might abuse my position to ask a question. No, you can't. Uh, about Not national allowed. action plans uh, and the extent to which they are genuinely national. We've covered already some of the ways in which civil society groups might be crowded out and not appear. But I'm wondering if you could say something about the extent to which national action plans are drafted by a kind of international group of experts and consultants rather than arising even from the level of the state bureaucracy and its perspective. Um, on yeah. I think that would be. Let me take the. Hold on to it so I can take the last two and then we can take okay. those out. So in the front row. <laughs> that was my question. <laughs> um, I'll come to it in a second. Um, first of all, I, I completely share your enthusiasm for your, your visualization. I've spent. I'm Juliet Fall from the University of, of Geneva in Switzerland. Um, I've spent four years in a project setting up a database and it looks absolutely like nothing on earth online. This is beautiful. So I have complete envy of what you've, what you've managed to do. So well done. Um, my question, which has just been stolen, um, was on the potential role of outside help in drafting some of these action plans because um, I was very taken with your story that um, it, it's not only north, you know, it's not only the north. There's, there's things coming out um, very much from 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 other continents, such as Africa. Um, but I did wonder on the role of outside aid, in particular development aid, in getting countries to kind of come up with a national action plan, and whether that slightly complicates the story. Apologies for stealing your question. And I think we have a final one just over there in the, in the black shawl, just over here in the third row. Hi, I'm Tatiana. I founded um, a charitable trust that helps victims of rape in Congo called TG Foundation. 
Um, my question really is more at the legal level um, and to kind of understand how important convictions are for against war criminals, uh, namely at a court like the ICC, in then kind of, I guess, engaging um, the decision makers who can empower um, the WPS to be implemented at a local and a, an international level. I mean, how how did the you know, do these convictions carry weight? Then every time somebody is convicted, does that reinforce the implementation of WPS and the agenda? I guess is my question. Great. So outside help and the yes. role of international criminal yes. assessments. All right. Um, I think to answer you both, I can't believe you stole Juliet's question. Um, it is absolutely the case that some national action plans are developed in quote-unquote consultation with outside agencies and that they kind of bilateral and multilateral funding um, create certain incentives and disincentives for the drafting of the national action plan in accordance with certain priorities. Um, I think that's unequivocally true empirically verifiably kind of the case. Um, it doesn't happen everywhere. Um, and again, I think, you know, I would encourage sort of detailed case-based analysis of the drafting process of national action plans in order to understand those political dynamics. And if I could just kind of give a little plug to the newly launched Gender Justice and Security Hub um, here, housed here at, at, um, at the LSE Center, um, a project that I will be working on as part of my role within the hub is looking at donor funding priorities and how they create particular imperatives for WPS implementation in a number of case study countries. So I think it's a really important question. Um, I would hesitate though always to, to assume or ever to assume that um, you know, outside agencies can impose priorities on local contexts or that um, outside agencies are conduits of some kind of universalized set of international values that just kind of filter down to the national or the quote unquote local level, whatever that means. Um, I think that these processes are, are complicated. I think what I've learned about myself in doing this research is that I either have a tendency to the kind of very macro top level structural analysis or I want really detailed kind of micro level case based analysis from which it's very difficult actually to generalize. So I think that moving between those two kind of levels is, is actually where somewhere in between you can tell the stories that are interesting and worth telling. Or somebody, somebody can. Um, and in terms of the, the normative um, impact of convictions at the ICC, I think what has been really interesting for me working on the book in particular, reading the Secretary General's reports, um, particularly around the um, dimension of sexual violence in conflict, which now, you know, as you know, has its own kind of annual Secretary General's reports under the auspices of the Women, Peace and Security, specifically related to sexual violence in conflict, is the, the invocation of the ICC and trials and convictions at the ICC as a really important part of demonstrating the significance of impunity in terms of strengthening that normative framework. So I think it very much is being articulated as part of the WPS story, as increasingly as part of WPS successes, actually, the creation of that level of kind of legal um, 
expertise and um, the impact that that's having um, on the, the lives of survivors and the treatment of sexual violence in conflict as a political issue under the WPS agenda. So um, I would say that it is entirely related and part of what we think of as WPS success currently. Right, thank you. A few final points. The website will be ready in a few weeks, at the end of the month. Hopefully but, next week. So check back then to see the fully functional alphabet. We'll tweet it. Uh, also check the Centre for Women, Peace and Security page for information on future events. You can follow the Centre on, on Twitter and social media. I believe it's LSE LS underscore WPS, looking for the North and Zoe, uh, uh, on Twitter. Uh, and as I mentioned at the beginning, there is a reception outside to which you're all warmly uh, invited. But if you'll join me first in thanking Laura.